Okay, welcome to two coaches at a coffee. Uh, Darren Burgess sitting opposite me across the Australian countryside and Jason Weber here. We're here for a coffee uh, a little bit later in the day today, so I'm thankful that Darren got me on for late coffee. How are you travelling, mate? Yeah, good, mate. Uh, yeah, had a interesting week- weekend, which we can talk about. Uh, but oh, uh, yeah, Let's get straight into it. No foreplay, straight into it. Uh, well, I spent the weekend, um, I guess, looking under the hood. Uh, apologies for the the, um, uh, the metaphor there with uh, Red Bull. I uh, was lucky enough to go to the supercar um, race on the Gold Coast, um, which was interesting enough. But before that, um, I spent a couple of days in the Queensland sort of bush with um, with. Uh, uh, Daniel Chunky Sanders, who's a Australian um, champion in um, uh, he r- rides uh, motorbike in the Paris Dakar. He's come fourth and third and was leading uh, last year and um, had to pull out because of injury. It was quite a bizarre injury, which I won't bother you with. But spending two nights with him by a campfire and a couple of other really, really good high performance managers. Um, uh, in the in and in and out of the AFL, my goodness, they are different athletes. The um, uh, the Red Bull athletes and the ex, let's call them extreme sport athletes. And I remember um, having a many a conversation with Darren Roberts about it, who did a lot of work with Red Bull uh, in the UK and Europe um, in terms of rehabbing players. And he just kept saying to me, "Do not treat them like team sports athletes." Do not treat them like team sports athletes. And and as you know, I've spoken to a few Red Bull uh, people, um, athletes over the years and and done a little bit of work with a few of them. Um, and it just reminded me, like this guy in the Paris Dakar, which is 21 days of um, riding through the desert with a, a basic navigation system, as in not GPS, but maps. Literally, they get maps an hour before the race and you press a button when you think you've reached the next landmark and the next map comes up. Um, it was just extraordinary the, uh, what it has to go through. But not only that, they ride three or 400 kilometres to the point, the stage that they're at on the bike. So they get up about 3 a.m., get on the bike, ride on the road three or 400 kilometres to get to the desert stage, do the desert stage, and then ride three or 400 kilometres back to their hotel, get back about six or seven o'clock at night. Um, so once they finish the stage, they then got to get back on their bike and ride it, ride it back to uh, the hotel or the camper van where they where they stay because obviously can't stay in the desert. Do that for twenty one days. Um, it, it is off the charts in terms of an in, endurance extreme event. And so, you know, he just talked about his training, and it is everything that we in the more traditional sports. Um, just wouldn't prescribe, and yet this guy's number, you know, two or three in the world. And having spoken once or twice to Toby Price, who was who's won Paris Dakar and is, yeah, he's thirty five, thirty six now, and heard him speak on a few occasions, yeah, they just don't do the same sort of uh, work that we do. And um, he told me that he went over. This is chunky. Went over to Austria to Red Bull headquarters and did all these tests with a bunch of soccer athletes and other athletes and he said look my scores were pretty bad but what I was thinking was get me on a bike and I'll beat any of you <laughs> I won't use the term that he used I'll beat any of you guys um 
I just don't need it. That's not what I need to perform. And I reckon the mistake we make is to not, uh, at times, is to not individualise our programs to um, to each player. We have a um, you know a lot of Indigenous players that play in the AFL, as you know, and culturally, and you know, there's minimum standards that, of course, they need. You know, the, those type of players need to hit, but you can't train them like you train everybody else. You can't train a ridiculously explosive or a ridiculously oh. mobile or a ridiculously slow athlete like you would everybody else. And it just sort of got me thinking about the individualization of it. And and before before I get you to jump in, Darren Roberts used to tell me that he, he would get these athletes and not only would he play, um, you know, Mario, Super Mario Kart and things like that with them just to warm them up and get them in the mood, but he would just scatter his gym equipment all over his facility and just say, all right, guys, off you go. And and they would just go around and go, oh, yeah, I wouldn't mind picking up that and lifting that and I wouldn't mind jumping between that. And he'd get them to choose their own adventure. And I remember thinking, this is insane. What's he doing? It's got to be three sets of eight, you know. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> it, yeah, it, it, it was genius and well before his time. And, and spending a couple of nights by a campfire with Chunky just made me think the same thing, like, uh, this, this guy's the best in the world at what he does, or certainly the best young talent. And, um, yeah, and there's a reason for it. And if we got him and put him into a regimented system where you must wake up at 7 a.m. every morning and you must do this and that, we'd only mess him up. Mate, you, you open a can of worms, um, yeah, really. There's, oh, there's this heaps, mate, and it, you, you, great, you bring in a great point. I had a conversation earlier this week with an Olympic archer, okay, so... Mate, I, I dig bow and arrow hunting and all that. I'm no good at it. I've never hit anything. Like my fishing, I go fishing just to put a rod in the water. I don't catch a single thing. But this archer was telling me, so he was an Olympic archer, and we were talking through it. He's, he's in the tech industry, so the whole speed sick thing we were talking. And he said, oh, you know, we are doing some testing one day in my, my, my program and was doing Nordboard. And I'm like, man, what are you? Doing, did they explain to you, why are you doing Norboard? You stand there and, and in fact, this guy had done a PhD post his career on the technical aspects of archery and about how they center and how they, their visual gaze and astounding stuff, like really, really interesting. And I said, man, like you're a smart guy. Did they explain to you why you're doing a Nordboard to do archery? He said, no, it was a, it was a, you know, a rank, a, a list of other things that we had to do that I didn't never understand. And I look at that and think exactly what you're saying. Like, on what basis do we figure that that has any relationship to what the person's doing? Much less, I really like the idea you espoused of the gym being all over the place. Now, I've just come from a couple of weeks in the US where one facility I was at, man, was the most impeccably clean, like guys were polishing stuff. It was unbelievable, beautiful. Now, admittedly, they've got to handle a lot of athletes coming through, but the idea of some randomness and some creativity, like, is awesome. I certainly know um, the great old, the, the Iron Gollywog, if anyone remembers the Iron Gollywog, it is uh, Ashley Jones. So Ash Jones oh, yeah. was one of the first S&C coaches I met he was with the Sydney Kings back in the late 90s, I think. Yeah, around that time. Anyway, he went on to work 
for a long time with the Canterbury Crusaders and with the All Blacks, and he did a little stint with the Wallabies. But the guy in Gollywog used to always, he used to have a program which was kind of, here's a bunch of things you have to do over a period. And you can pick whichever one you want to do. So you could do number one, two, and three, and then tomorrow do four, five, and six, as long as you get them all done. But it had this element of creativity to it. And you've got to wonder, you've got to wonder. I mean, I... I think we get caught in the, you know, the regimen of three times eight and things like for no good reason. And I often reflect, and you talk about Indigenous athletes, I think that's an incredible one. I trained one yeah, yeah. that is very widely known in Australia at the moment. A little while ago I covered for him, uh, covered him in a group he was in. But um, when he was given to me, the program he was given to do was ridiculous. And I rang the guy who was running it and said as much and said, like, you're nuts. This isn't, that's not what this kid is. Like, this kid was being asked to run, um, you know, six minute efforts. And I'm like, you're mm. nuts. This kid is an elite, elite repeat speed runner. You know, you need to keep the quality. Anyway, he's subsequently yeah, gone on and gone nuts where he is now. Well, yeah, I think it's, um, there's profiling the athlete and what they're good and bad at and what, you know, from a physical point of view. And then there's the cultural aspect of it. Yeah. And and I'll, I'll give you a, a, one example before we um, you know, move on to the next one. Um, we signed, and I'm name-dropping here, uh, Luis Suarez for Liverpool uh, in 2011 or 12. And um, he walked in and he was just this beast, this thick um thick through his core, thick through his hips, and we put him through different screening things. And, um, I mean, the only screening he really needed to do was to look at um, he's played 53 games a year for the last three years as captain of Ajax in the Champions League, so he's, he's going okay. Um, but he'd never set foot in a gym, and if you looked at him, you would just think, uh, he's incredible squat, incredible, you know, any of this sort of stuff. And he literally had never set foot in a gym. So when when we got him, we were like, no, I, I don't want to mess with his um, his makeup by forcing mm. him to do gym work. And so um, the only time he went into the gym, uh, which was sort of devised by myself and Jordan Milsom and, and Phil Coles, was we had another young Uruguayan. Um, that, that needed to get in the gym called Sebastian Coates, and he was chronically underdeveloped, so he needed the work. We said to Seb, listen, mate, the only way, I said to Louise, the only way Seb's going to get in the gym is if you go in there because he looks up to you. Um, and so Louise would just go in there just to get Seb in there and then leave again. <laughs> and So, it, look, we um, uh, we treated him individually, but I reckon, you know, too often the mistake is, uh, the only way to get strong is through squats and the only way to get uh, fast through Olympic well, lifts and things. Like that. Exactly. And I think, mate, that leads into so one of our other sort of subjects today was this idea of long-term athletic development. Now, I don't want to launch into the whole thing, but exactly what you just said. So I've got – I still coach high school at the moment and across multiple sports. So I've got – Hockey, rugby, uh, AFL, swimming, rowing, the whole pop bit. But what I see is kids come in and you see the ones that take to it straight away. That are, they've got coordination, they've got range of motion, they get it. You've got other ones that just don't. 
And then, so I had a kid today who's been like lightly squatting and doing the range of motion, the whole thing. He's just saying, I just don't, my back doesn't feel good. I said, since, since when? And he said, oh, the last week or so. So I said, like, let's take squat out. Let's go and do some other things. And he should have seen the look of panic on his face. And I said, like, yeah. mate, don't worry. We can skin the cat a different way. We don't, you know, it's a great lift, but it's not the only lift. So we moved on to some other stuff. But clearly this kid's perception was that's the way I'm moving forward. But I think um, that ability to even, or excuse the doors maybe, um, yeah. even the absence of, like, let's say, an elite profile of any nature, even if you're operating like I was today, like I'm in a gym with kids, and is you've got to move quickly to adapt. Some can, some can't. And and I get all the let's get the range of motion. I've got a like another kid who's great, really, really strong, but he's got the most stiff ankles ever. So he's never going to squat great range. I'm moving his, I'm doing AP moves on his ankle and all that stuff, but it's not going to change really quickly. So you've got to find another way. And I do think um, there's an element of system that we require, particularly when there's scale, when there's big numbers of athletes, but the ability to adapt um, to the individual quickly, I think is important. And I yeah, think from your, your, cultural, your cultural piece, is it adds because if a kid knows or an athlete knows, you know, Darren's made a decision to make me a bit different for a reason. He's explained it. We get buy-in. And I think if you get athlete buy-in that way, they, you own them. And I don't mean own them in a bad way, but they, they yeah. bond with you. And I think bonding with your athlete is is critical because there's got to be trust. There's got to be yeah. trust because you, you're dealing with their career. When we, we're all dealing with each other's career. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Two Coaches and a Coffee is proudly sponsored by SpeedSig. If you work with field sport athletes, understanding how your players generate and control speed is critical to your effectiveness as a coach, medical practitioner or sports scientist. Acceleration, speed and deceleration not only can be generated using unique individual strategies, but those strategies change as an athlete gets stronger, as they develop better skills, most definitely when they suffer injuries, and as the athlete gets older. Does your athlete monitoring program cover these variables? SpeedSig uses IMU GPS technology that your team is already using to provide biomechanically validated and reliable data that describes how an athlete generates and controls speed. Check out our website for more detail at speedsig.com. Now back to two coaches and a coffee. Yeah, 100%. And look, in terms of that, uh, individualised programs, leads us on to the the topic that I was pretty keen to have a chat about, and it's probably our last one, is uh, Derek Hansen, who I like. He's got a good website called sprintcoach.com. He... uh, can I just add in there, can I just add there, it's really, this is an important thing to me, is you've got to know who Derek is, where he comes from. Derek was trained by the great Charlie Francis. So this isn't yeah. a guy who just turned up out of nowhere. He learned his trade and he's the perfect example of, um, and I don't know him, I don't know the man, but I certainly followed his work. He's not a PhD in anything, but like academically, but he studied hard under one of the greats, and I do, I love Charlie Francis's work and 
I've read everything he's ever written. But it's really important for coaches to understand that, like, where do people come from? How do they learn? You know, he learned off one of the greats, you know, so that's Derek Hansen yeah. to you. Well, and I guess there's a difference between you and I. Is, uh, one of the differences is I, I don't um, I don't know his background. I, I don't know much of Charlie Francis's work. Of course, I know the basics, but that's not uh, I brought up. Uh, I was brought up and educated on team sport dynamics and right. not necessarily the sprint side of things. So I just like Derek on social media because he, he I, I tend to align with with some of his thinking around yes. applying sprint stuff into team sports, you know, like Stu McMillan yeah. and, and some really good guys in that field. Anyway, he put it out on Instagram the after Kirk Cousins' uh, Achilles tendon rupture, which was unfortunate for Kirk, but it did help my NFL fantasy um, <laughs> team. So, um, there was one small positive. Uh, and I've got his, his Instagram post up here. Achilles tendon ruptures in the NFL, 2020, 17 for the year, 2021, 16, 2022, 18. So far up to week eight, 18 so far. So the same as last year and the most ever, according to, to this. Um, 67% are on grass, 78% of those are non-contact. So it's not necessarily turf-related. Before I get your input, I'm just going to go to his blog, which he put out uh, in August this year, and he spoke about you know, just some incidents and anatomy and things like that. But his risk factors and potential causes list, and this is as good as any and makes a lot of sense, previous yeah. injury, early specialisation, over-specialisation, exercise selection, inactivity, exercise progression rates, uh, practice and playing surface, footwear, uh, pharmaceuticals, and diet and nutrition. There's 10 of them. In his final remarks, he doesn't necessarily say that, um, you know, one's better than the other, uh, how we can reduce the rates, but he sort of implored people to be aware of those 10 factors. So if I go through those 10 factors, diet and nutrition, pharmaceuticals, footwear, practice playing surface, Exercise progression rates, period of inactivity, exercise selection, they're things that we can uh, have a fair input on. In terms of over-specialisation and early specialisation, uh, maybe not so much. And the big one, which we, we can talk about a bit, um, is previous injury. So, look, I don't know why they're just going nuts in terms of um, uh, Achilles ruptures. But as you know, it's 12 months out. It's a massive injury. Um, we had one this year in the last round of, of the AFL for um, for the Crows playing in, in Perth. Um, there's a whole range of different reasons why we speculate it, it might have happened. Um, but 18 already uh, is just massive. Any yeah. thoughts? Mate, I think, um, again, this is one of these kind of, you know, I'd obviously give you the thoughts as best I got them. It's a little bit hypothetical in that you'd love to know more information around them. Um, some of them, so the two that I saw in the NFL that I watched the videos of were were almost crushing injuries. Like the guy got, um, you know, he's got dorsiflexed under force and the tendon snapped. Now, was the tendon predisposed and it snapped and a normal one wouldn't have? I've got no idea. Um, I do think I agree with you that if you were to look simplistically, well, if this was to impact my environment, what could I do? Like, clearly, I think looking at the, the exercise selection now, 
I know in, in Australian, one Australian sport, recently we had a run of Achilles tendons and part of the review, there were two elements that came to that and one of them was a plyometric component. Now, is that part of these programs? I've got no idea. There's always, particularly NFL, the strive to be faster uh, is massive. What loads they're doing in the gym, I mean, there's a, again, from an NFL perspective, I know there are coaches who start to shift away once they start playing, try to keep the guys fresh. And we've had this discussion previously. How much load do we need in season to keep them at that level or, or how much is too much? Um, but there's unquestionably, I think, that the the age component, like I don't know, yeah. a couple of those ones that were, you know, uh, Rogers as an older guy, you know, it happens. Um, but I do think us controlling that total load, and I think in a, in a little way, it feeds back to the LTAD conversation that we've got to make sure on the way up the players aren't getting cooked with that early specialisation. They're, they're balanced on the way up. But as they're coming down, as they're older, and older in the NFL might be a different different beast because of the, of the nature of the game, but injuries reduce the level of load that they can tolerate. Now, um, again, a gratuitous speed sig plug, but I was meeting this morning with a group and we were – looking at the difference in an Achilles injury, and some of them, they don't get back to normal function. So let's say you've got a 25-year-old kid who has a, this is called, he's had equal function left and right, and then you're now down to 90%. And that's going to, that 10% difference, then over, then we load it, and then we load on X number of reps for the next couple of years. That difference doesn't go away. They have to accommodate for that. On a slightly different story, I was talking to a kid this morning who had a back injury 12 months ago and now he's got sort of symptomatic again but he hasn't been doing his sort of rehab type stuff. I said, mate, you don't get to escape that. Once you have yeah. big injuries like that, you now carry them. So you have a series of calf strains or you have an Achilles or you have an ACL. Those things you will carry for the rest of your career. There's no way around it. You know, so oh, those predisposing factors. It's a massive thing that we, I think, we, when I say we, we miss a bit. Um, oh, look, they've, they've come back uh, into the program now. We don't need to do the extra Achilles work, hamstring work, ankle work, appropriate whatever. whatever it might be. Um, mm. But I think, I, I guess in summary, um, in terms of the Achilles stuff, why do they happen? There's a there's a myriad of reasons, and you know the, those that say that Derek outlined are as good as any in terms of encapsulating them all. Um, but it's um, we ought to look at all of those things, and it's not a case of or get someone in to look at all of those things for us because sometimes we can be a bit biased by our own program. Yeah, we're covering that. We're covering that. Yeah. Yeah, it might be help. It might help to have somebody external to come in and have a look. But excuse me, we just need to make sure that we cover off all of those things. Yeah, one of the tough things I think when you're reviewing a program, which is really hard, like really hard, and that's it can become a bit statistical down the track. But the idea of figuring out what's actually working, right? So if I'm doing, let's say I'm doing all these bounds. Are people actually getting faster because of those bounds or are they just tolerating them? And then at some point they don't tolerate them and they get injured. Now, I'm not, not bagging bounds. I love bounds, but let's make it something else, right? We're doing bench press. And all of a sudden, like I got accused years ago, I had a kid do a, make a stupid move and he tore his pec doing bench press. Oh, you're doing too much bench press. 
No, the kid made a dumb mistake and hurt himself. But same thing, is more and more bench press and spending our energy on that thing, is it really helping the outcome, which is, you know, in our, in our specialisation, which is team sport, right? So trying to discern that that right relationship of, they talk about minimum effective dose. What do I need to do to get this kid on the park, keep them on the park, keep mm. them healthy? And sometimes yeah. I think we we as S&C coaches will go a bit overboard because we want to do this and that and the other thing. And sometimes, and I've talked to this to staff over the years, do we need all that shit? Like at the end of the day, are we just creating fatigue? Are we creating something that in that really changes that athlete's functionality and performance? So I think it's an open-ended well, one, mate. Yeah, we had some good discussions with some, you know, some good people over the weekend around that and you can't test everything. You can't test no. what what you're doing is working. So you have to go on A, domain evidence, your own evidence or evidence that you've seen work, B, evidence in literature or C, the player. Uh, and sometimes you're doing things because the player wants yeah. wants them done, even though you think, eh, I'm not sure that's working. But um, <laughs> Yeah, which comes back anyway. to your cultural piece, right? It comes back to your, your culture thing early, is that sometimes the kids want to do stuff or kids, the athletes, Sometimes they want to do things that make them feel right and good to go. And I can I can understand that, mate. I think, um, you know, having confidence in your body to do things, some of it may be predicated on, yes, I've done this thing and I've always done it and, you know, that makes me feel confident. And is that enough to, to, to uh, get them on the park and keep them? Um, but it does, as, come, as we said, it comes back to individualisation. And... I'll make one other little comment then, which is pursuant to staff movements at the moment in the AFL, is having people on board, staff, who are, number one, open to learning from older people, older coaches, and they're open to the experience of, well, maybe this issue I've got to talk about. I don't I can't make a decision on this kid. I've got to talk it through with the boss because there's, I've no doubt, as, as a younger coach, I think I botched lots of stuff, lots of stuff. I still have this horror, horror um, experience of a soccer player I was training privately decades ago before I was even in professional sport. Yeah, we're doing sled, 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 boom, big hamstring. I'm like, and the kid never, I never heard from him again. He disappeared. I always, I mean, 30 years later, I still feel bad about it Um, because I didn't know what I was doing at that stage. So understanding the need to learn and have humility, I think is absolutely critical in your career as a coach. Have humility to learn off people and, you know, try to learn off the wise ones, ones who've survived. Exactly. I've lost all track of time and as usual we could keep going and God knows I'd love another coffee, um, but we might just have to go and do that anyway. So, as, a pl- as always, mate, it's a pleasure. Good to catch up. And um, we'll see everybody uh, next one on episode 10. Good luck. Yeah,